0: This Golden Edge podcast is sponsored by Station Casino's STN Sports. Download the app and get a bonus up to $500 when you sign up.
1: You're listening to the Golden Edge podcast sponsored by Station Casino's STN Sports and presented by the Las Vegas Review-Journal and Blue Wire. Here's your host, Ben Goetz. What is up, hockey fans? This is the Golden Edge podcast, the podcast where the Las Vegas Review-Journal talks about hockey. We are back uh, I am Ben Goetz, your Golden Knights review journal beat writer. Uh, joining me uh, is my R- LV colleague Matt Atencio. Matt,
0: how you doing? You know, Ben, doing doing pretty good today. Welcome back, by the way.
1: Thank you. Yeah, we we did take a little hiatus there because I had some stuff to take care of Uh, you know
0: some big life news nothing nothing too important
1: or anything got a ring on the face I actually forgot to uh wear the ring in today (laughs) it's real I'm, I'm still adjusting to this new phase of uh married life here so I forgot that at home and luckily I don't think my wife uh listens to this podcast just my wife now I'm getting good at calling her my wife I'm not so good at wearing the accessories that come with the very expensive ceremony uh, we performed. But yeah, so it took some time off to take care of that and then enjoy some quick uh, vacation uh, with my bride-slash-wife, nailing it. I got that part down. But now we're we're back for a quick uh, check-in. We're taking another week off next week because this is the slow, slow... Uh, time of year and then, matt you're moving on to uh greener pastures so we will uh miss you but thank you for being a part of this well, the last thank couple you, of
0: weeks thank you for having me on not throwing me off or saying stupid things
1: well you know if we did that then i would have been off this podcast a very long time ago including admitting on air on the public airwaves once again that i forgot my wedding ring so you should have uh, just gotten a studio. tattoo that's all you need I could, I see, but I'm scared of tattoo. I've never gotten one. I don't, I don't know. know if, yeah. I don't know if this delicate frame uh, could handle it. Uh, but like I said, so we do have hockey things uh, to discuss. It's a pretty slow uh, time of year. Like I said, not a lot going on. The Knights do have some RFA's that they will settle, uh, you, presumably at some point in the near. Future, uh, as we've talked about on earlier episodes of this show, I think Nick Hague is still a guy who has the potential to linger. He kind of didn't offer much a comment at Riley Smith's annual charity softball game on his contract status. So that's ones that might linger on, but for the most part, you know, we'll start to see these deals kind of trickle in. You would think at some point during this month, Keegan colasar has an arbitration hearing set for uh, I think it's a week from today. It might be the uh, 11th, so we'll have news. On him, by that point, Nick Y., you would imagine, uh, will get done at some point here, too. But there are some interesting topics that I've crept up uh, this week. One, uh, a former Golden Knight went on a podcast and said some interesting things that have made the rounds on the interweb. So I think those are worth diving into a little bit. Uh, plus, I've got a piece coming out in Sunday's paper, and it's actually online uh, today, Friday, the 5th, as we're recording this, about all the Knights cap-clearing moves that they've done over the past Uh, ever you know basically since they started the franchise and kind of evaluating how those have turned out in hindsight so we'll kind of go over that kind of discuss all the various you know subtractions the knights have made and which ones kind of stand out to us but before we do all that just want to remind everyone that the golden edge podcast is sponsored uh, by station casinos stn sports Uh, we are presented of course by the las vegas review journal check out all our written work at ReviewJournal.com. I've already plugged the one story, but you can obviously check out all our work from this off-season up there as well. Uh, also, we are presented by Blue Wire. And of course, if you guys could rate, review, subscribe, whatever you do podcast, please do this one. We would very much appreciate it. Uh, so, Matt, I get back from my lovely time away with uh, the the new wife, hopefully the only wife that I will have for the duration of the rest of this lifetime. Uh, fingers crossed if you're listening. I do love you. Uh <laughs> I get back and I see that Max Pacioretty's name is like popping up on my my Twitter feed, a little bit of online searches and stuff, and so I'm a little bit, you know, confused. My uh, boss even sends me like a link of like, "Hey, just making sure you saw this because you were kind of away when this happened." Uh, and so Pacioretty made an appearance on the uh, Raw Knuckles podcast with uh, Chris Nolan and Tip Stapleton, both former NHL players, um, and he did that July 28th, and he did say some interesting things about the Knights organization. Um, I do want to. Uh, quick say, you know, if people are interested, I think it's worth listening to the whole thing. Patch Ready is a really good interview. We've had him on this podcast before. People can go back a couple years and listen to the interview that uh, Dave Shane and I did with him uh, at the time. I mean, he's really good to talk to. Uh, hopefully you guys figure that out. Rating the various stories we had about Max during his time here. Um, So it is like worth, like I said, exploring the whole thing because he's got some good stories about his time with the Knights. Obviously, his time with the Canadians and kind of his time developing as a hockey player. Um, but obviously the real juicy stuff uh, came pretty much right at the end. It was the last like I think five to 10 minutes of the podcast. And he kind of got asked about the differences between playing in Montreal and playing for the Knights. And then this was kind of the big quote that then got shared um, from there, which was uh, when I first got uh, to Vegas, basically Pat already said it was weird that there was like no accountability. And I'm not talking about in the team. I'm talking about like ever, you couldn't feel pressure coming off anyone else from the coach to the management. Uh, so that's obviously a very interesting quote from Pacioretty. I should point out for some important context Pacioretty is an insanely driven person like his summer workouts are I think pretty uh, legendary for those that listen to the Peyton Krebs interview we did uh, with him before training camp this past season he talked about working out with Pacioretty and how intense it was so Pacioretty I think is just a very driven person that does kind of need external pressure or kind of thrives on that he talks about in the podcast a lot too about how he likes being coached hard and how he always likes people kind of you know, getting on his case and everything. So I think that's interesting. Uh, it was especially interesting when then he kind of followed up talking about accountability and was mentioning how you know, the differences between Montreal and Vegas was when he had a bad game in Vegas, he would walk in the hallway at the presumably of city national arena the next day. And he'd be like, and then someone would say hi to me. And he's like, I'm used to just like w- looking at the carpet and we don't say anything walking past each other. So I think that was like important context for like a, uh, you know, his version of accountability being like, oh my gosh, they said hi to me. What is this place?
0: Yeah, well, I, I, listen, I, I can't speak to... What goes on in the locker room? Because we're not there. We don't know exactly what's going on. But for that second point that you made, that he said, kind of about the difference between Montreal and Vegas with that, like, I don't really think you can compare those two at all. No. One, one's a brand new franchise. The other one is one of the most storied franchises in the league with one of the most ravenous fan bases in the entire world.
1: That speaks two languages. By yeah. Way. That's like and the most insane part of Montreal is that he was an American that was there speaking to you know the english-speaking canadian media plus the french-speaking canadian media and i don't think Patrick spoke much french before he got there
0: no not only was did he play for that team he was the captain of that team so again i think trying to compare the two cities is like trying to compare apples and oranges it, it's they're just not there's no similarity between the two of them at all
1: yeah and then one more uh, quote before we dive into this more and once again i would listen to the whole thing because even the you know, some of the parts that get aggregated online and some of the articles that pop out, I don't think even include the context of him talking about like, you know, oh, my gosh, someone said hi to me, which I think, you know, points out that Pacioretty, you know, has a certain way of working that is not necessarily considered normal. He's just a very driven Competitive person like that. But another interesting quote was, you know, if we had a bad year like this, talking about the year the Knights just had where they missed the playoffs, uh, the city would be half on fire in Montreal. And here it is in Vegas, it's 80 degrees and it's sunny, and we're getting our car washed and getting our organic food and going to play golf. Uh, I was kind of like, we've got to police this thing a little better amongst each other. I don't want to say it was a country club, but you have no one from the outside holding you accountable. And he mentioned that he kind of said that on his way out the door i think presumably in his exit meetings with like management and the coaching staff um from this year that he's like hey we gotta kind of tighten things up here a little bit with the knights and now of course he's no longer part of the organization so won't be necessarily part of that tightening up uh but yeah now that we reflect on both like what do you make of these quotes and kind of what the message patch already is putting out there right now.
0: Well, didn't he allude to something like that kind of in his as his exit interview with the media too? Because that's, I don't want to say that's necessarily what he was saying, but it's kind of now kind of giving some light as to why he thought maybe there's a little bit of dysfunction or anything like that. I don't know. I'm just, I'm thinking
1: out loud here. So he's pointing out, like, he was talking about chemistry issues, and I also think that got, it got amplified a little bit, but I think he was talking about chemistry, you know, issues with the team in the way that, like, Guys were going in and out of the lineup the whole time. Lines were always jumbled. So the group wasn't together enough to gel. Not necessarily that, like, the group was incapable of Mm -hmm. gelling, if that makes sense. Like, he was like, it's not necessarily that the, you know, mix was wrong or that the stew was wrong. Is it that it didn't have enough time to kind of come together is what I took out of it. Because I think the quotes that got kind of blown up were from um, the Chicago game which is when they officially got eliminated from the playoffs Pat Shorty was one of the people that talked after that Um, and I was you know actually there and that's kind of what I took from it because I believe I followed up with him um, on it but I think a lot of people took that to me like oh he's saying this team has chemistry issues Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's where he was going but he definitely was alluding to like there are you know cracks in the foundation here and I think he's obviously kind of pushing that a little bit further with these comments of like you know more than obviously so the injuries and whatever else you want to blame last season on these like there's other stuff going on here that we have to correct I think he's pushing at which is interesting because I think this no accountability thing that he's talking about does kind of push against some of the like narrative that's around this team and I was gonna say outside the organization but I think it's inside it Mm -hmm. as well where we're always talking about like You know, oh my gosh, these knights are ruthless. They are cutthroat. At the minute you're not living up to your contract, they will ship you out, bring someone else in. Um, And like I said, that's not just um, outside people kind of voicing that. I mean, Riley Smith uh, before this last season, before he got his long before he got his contract extension, was like, I think you're always in a contract year when you're here uh, in. You know Vegas playing for the Golden Knights. Robin Leonard, I remember, was on a podcast, I believe, before last season. It was the Camen Strick podcast, and said something to the effect of like, "Hey, you know the deal when you you know sign up to play here. Like the second that they can get someone better for you know likely cheaper, they will move on from you. It might have just been if someone's you know better than you, they will move on from you. So you know players seem to kind of do understand. Other players have like voiced like there is some sort of pressure." from management of like they're always looking to move on from you um so was it then surprising for you to hear kind of this completely contradictory almost opinion from patch already yeah actually it was really surprising i didn't
0: think we were ever going to hear something like that coming from golden knights players but i get it you I mean you think it kind of the way things have gone down the last couple of seasons i think that we're going to start to see more of that stuff coming out not just from players but Former employees, people that just are not were not happy with the way the organization was going, how everything was working with them, and so, I mean, we'll, we'll see more about what happens, what comes out in the next
1: however long. Yeah, I'm interested to kind of think about, and maybe we'll get a sense. Obviously, more in training camp when guys come in, and I'm sure they'll be asked about these comments. I mean, I planned, obviously to ask some guys about Patchetti's comments and send to see what their take uh, on it is. But I'm curious who it kind of reflects the most on. You know, I think one thing my mind jumped right away to is like, okay, well, is Pacioretty talking about the Knights coaches? Because I think both um, Gerard Gallant, who was the first coach Pacioretty played here for, and then Pete DeBoer, um, who was the second coach uh, he played for, were not necessarily like, you know, hard Cutthroat uh, kind of... Yeah, I was going to put another word after hard, but I don't want to put uh, any sort of explicit rating uh, on this podcast. Uh, you know, like, drugland. obviously, like, player's coach, ex-player, uh, loves giving his players rope, um, kind of doesn't have, like, a ton of, like, super... You know, has some kind of hard and fast system rules, but for the most part, is like, you know, I want you to go out there and just play your game kind of thing. Um, you know, obviously not... You know, doesn't completely, like, let players have... Free reign, but is considered like a player's coach and a guy that um, guys really love to play for. And while Pete DeBoer isn't quite the same kind of guy and he, I think has a little bit more rigid of systems and ideas and stuff. I also don't think that Pete DeBoer was necessarily the most like difficult guy to play for in terms of day in and day out. It's not like they ran a ton of hard practices. It's not mm-hmm. like Pete was running into the ground. And both of those guys were very reluctant to criticize players openly um I mean I think one of the big shocks of the late season kind of Robin Leonard yep I saga say that yeah with Pete DeBoer <laughs> was the fact that Pete DeBoer basically was like openly at the time criticizing Robin Leonard basically saying like he's healthy but he's just not playing well right now and then obviously Pete DeBoer at the end of the season kind of retracted that of like I shouldn't have said that he was healthy um so that was one of the few times that um you know uh Pete DeBoer had ever kind of singled out a player uh in a negative fashion almost always Pete DeBoer if you ask the guy who was playing well would give you a good uh quote on it if you asked him like hey what about this player that's not doing so well he'd be like ah we all need to you know play better and help this guy out or like when William Carlson was in a slump he'd like hey William Carlson being pretty hard on himself he's like I'm not shocked that William Carlson's hard on himself but he does you know so much to kind of help out um the team so I Part of me wondered whether he was kind of speaking of like, hey, we need these, you know, maybe a firmer hand at coach to sometimes kind of put us in line once in a while. But, it, you know, listed the whole podcast, like much earlier in the podcast, Pat Reddy kind of raved about Pete DeBoer and how much he improved his game. I think, you know, Pat Reddy said Pete DeBoer has been the best, you know, coach for me personally. He didn't say he's like, you know, necessarily been the best coach overall I've played mm-hmm. for. But in terms of like the guy that's helped me the most, it was, I think he, he basically named Pete DeBoer that and said, you know, his D zone structure was... Awesome. So, uh, that kind of like made me, you know, wonder if that was necessarily the case. But I don't know. Do you think there's something to that of like you know maybe the knights' coaches have been at times you know too light on these guys, maybe especially publicly?
0: Yeah, it's publicly I think is the one that's more more important there because I mean again we're not in the actual locker room, so we we don't know what's said behind closed doors. But when Pete DeBoer comes out and with when William Carlson's having a bad year. Doesn't say, look, he's not playing well right now. He says, "Oh, we all need to play better," or something like that. You're kind of not holding players accountable in the public eye. Again, we don't know what happens behind closed doors, but people know that something's not right, and to try to openly deny it just it doesn't really help the situation that we're in right now.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's different ways to approach it. Where, like, I think Pachetti, clearly based on this interview and listening to like the whole brunt of it, is a guy who's like. If you you know call me out you know publicly, I can take it, I can deal with it. Um, I enjoy hearing criticisms about you know my game and like whether I like you know think they're fair or not, I can use that as like fuel and it'll push me to work harder, be better, score more, and that'll ultimately help kind of drive success for me. It's just because I don't think that's necessarily a universal mm-hmm. approach. Uh, I certainly am not someone who like when someone says something negative about me and it's like, you know, I get nasty emails or like Twitter comments about my work and I like shrivel up in a ball for days. So I I think it's interesting that it's not necessarily a one uh, size fits all uh, approach, but the coach that the Knights have now gotten in Bruce Cassidy uh, went on a pretty decent monologue at his introductory press conference about how he's going to hold people accountable And a big thing about why he ultimately uh, was fired in Boston about how tough he was on young players and, like, making them earn uh, their playing time and, like, stick to the system. And he's, you know, known as a guy that doesn't necessarily sugarcoat it uh, in the public eye. And so if, indeed, Pacioretty is kind of... I'm uh, implying this, but from the way that Pacioretty sounded, if, indeed, he kind of left either McCrimmon or DeBoer in his exit interviews with the idea that, like... Hey, we kind of need to change some things around here. I'm curious, and I wonder what your thoughts on of like whether that ultimately led them to a guy like Bruce Casty where they think like maybe this is the style we need to go for if one of our top players from last year is expressing this opinion to us. I mean, that's a good question.
0: Uh, I'd say maybe, but I think a lot of why, and again, I'm I'm just speculating here. I could be completely wrong. Um, I think a lot of the reason why they hired Bruce Cassidy just was because he was probably the best coach that was on the market. And that is this, also
1: a good reason. This
0: team does like to go for the best available thing on the market. So if we, they probably knew that Barry Trotz didn't want to coach this, come, this upcoming season, so they went, okay, who's the next best option? There it is. So, again, maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's kind of the way I lean given the front office's track record.
1: No, I think that's totally fair. And yeah, there are plenty of reasons to uh, hire Bruce Cassidy, uh, you know, uh, independent of his style because the results certainly speak for themselves as well. But I'm yeah really interested to kind of figure out, you know, if the dynamic feels different this season, if we'll get players to kind of admit whether the dynamic feels different or whether players will just say like, look, like. Like I said, Max is just wired differently than a lot of guys and he just likes things a certain way and we don't necessarily have that, but this system still works for a lot of people. Obviously, the first um, three years that Pacioretty was here, whether the Knights had no accountability or not, they were pretty successful. And then obviously this last year, they were not successful uh, at all. But I'll be curious to see uh, how that plays out moving forward and what we can kind of glean, like I said, once especially guys come back, into town for training camp and everything, how much they'll be willing to speak on it. Question uh, for you real quick. Hit me.
0: Do you in any way, shape or form uh, believe that he might've been talking about the leadership within the locker room? So he
1: t- he might have been a little bit, I can definitely see that, but he specifically mentioned like, you don't feel, he talked about a lot of external pressures, I think, because he talked mm-hmm. about not feeling it from like, management to the coaches on down and then he talked about um you know like like i said how the city of montreal would be on fire and stuff so it definitely didn't seem like he was necessarily talking about hey internally we've you know in the locker room there's no accountability maybe that is slightly the case um especially maybe this past year because i think guys talked about it that you know like i said this goes back to the chemistry thing where i don't think pat would necessarily be talking about like This room is incapable Mm -hmm. of holding each other accountable, or this room is incapable of gelling together. But just the fact that, like, obviously Stone was out for an extremely um, long time, Martinez was out almost the entire year, and literally, like, Martinez's first game back, he gave like the rah rah speech uh, in between periods of that uh, Chicago Blackhawks game on national TV, where the Knights come back from a 3 0 deficit, win that one in overtime. So I think that speaks to obviously Alec Martinez's impact Riley Smith was out the entire like last of the year and he's worn an a for basically his entire tenure mm-hmm. with the team um so if he is I wonder if it's partially like I said that as well of just like there were a lot of guys out Patrickte himself is obviously a guy that um you know has been a leader on that team for a long time and he missed half the year yeah. with various uh injuries including obviously like a broken foot a wrist injury I don't remember the last one um but he was gone. A lot, so maybe that was part of it too. Of like, we didn't have the normal guys in there every day, kind of setting the standard, and maybe that did lead to the standard uh, being, you know, kind of slipped a little. I think Jonathan Marsh so talked about it at the end of season, kind of media availability that, like, you know, I'll take it on pond myself to make sure, like, we hold up our standards, kind of day in and day out. And so, you know, I do wonder whether maybe he's alluded to a little bit of like. You know, it's on us, too, because more so, than the fact, than the injuries and you know, all the other, I think, kind of excuses that go into last season. Not that there mm-hmm. isn't some validity to all of them, but I think this might be Pacioretty also saying, you know, we let it slip, too. And I think that's definitely also fair to say that the you Knights know, still, at the end of the year, had a chance to get into the playoffs, despite everything that had gone on. And they did not close the year well at all. I think their last nine games, they were like three, two, and four so they won three of their last nine games and lost six, essentially. What so was
0: it, 0-for-17 shootout or something 0 like
1: that? 0-for-17 sh- when the three straight shootout losses to, yeah, San Jose, Dallas, and then Chicago made it uh, abundantly official, though that Dallas game basically put them at like a 2% chance to make the playoffs or whatever. So it's definitely possible. Um, and like I said, I'll be curious to see you know, if there's better help next year. Maybe guys are singing a different tune. Uh, at the end of next season or maybe it'll be interesting if we're kind of hearing similar things kind of creep out if you know Mark Stone's back injury recurs or you know takes longer to heal than expected then all of a sudden he's not in the locker room as much anymore Vegas Vegas We can transition now to kind of our second big topic of the Mm -hmm. day, which once again, I had a piece go live uh, on the site about all the Knights cap clearing moves over the past uh, five seasons and kind of, you know, looking at which ones look good, which are aging well, uh, which do not look like they're going to be successful, which was kind of tricky because uh, spoiler alert, a lot of the ones that really don't look like they're going to be successful are kind of their more recent ones uh, some of them don't really have a chance to be successful given that uh, they traded Pacioretty and Dylan Coughlin for uh, nothing in return so the second either of those two guys contribute something to the Carolina Hurricanes the Knights have lost that trade Yep. similar to Marc-Andre Fleury if the second he won a game which he did win several for the Chicago Blackhawks the Knights didn't get anything back you know commensurate with that kind of Performance, So those are kind of uh, automatic losses. And then even, I think, the Evgeny Dodonov trade from uh, this summer, not the one acquiring him and not the one that they tried to do at the trade deadline that got voided, <laughs> uh, was also tricky, um, which is interesting because I think a lot of these deals for a long time, the Knights were actually pretty savvy, moving guys kind of out a year ahead of time, usually with a year left on the deal, sometimes more. Um, but they always had a way to kind of backfill, replace that guy internally for cheaper, or re- you know, rearrange the roster in some way where you know, they kind of netted it out in a positive direction and then would use kind of these extra picks. A lot of them, they would then flip into deals for guys that they did want on maybe a different type of contract and stuff. And like I said, it seems like the last couple of years that's kind of come to a screeching halt and I think a big part of that is now we have this flat salary cap that is making it so much harder for them to move money out, and it's kind of put a crimp in their style. Um, I mean, do you consider that, I guess, like a, a feature or a bug that they have just seemingly been hurt but that more so than a lot of other teams by the fact that the cap just isn't going up and uh, presumably will not go up uh, much for the foreseeable future?
0: Well, you know, that's that's what happens when you have – a lot of money invested into very few players. Teams know you're in a bind, and they're not going to give you a deal just because you ask nicely, and that's kind of what we've seen. What over if the they life. say please, though? Well, if they say please, then of course no. But, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the big problem they've been having is just that teams know they're cap-strapped, and nobody wants to help this team. So you end up getting Max Pacioretty and Dylan Coughlin traded for functionally nothing and until either the cap goes up or they start slipping to the point where they're going to be garbage for the next couple of years, I don't really see it changing.
1: Yeah. And like, so the cap's not supposed to go up for at least, um, a couple more years. So we're looking at like $1 million increases, I think for at least the next, um, two off seasons. So it'd go up, uh, you know, up to $83.5 million in 2023. It would go up to $84.5 million in 2024. Um, So definitely in the next couple of years, while the Knights, you know, still have Jack Eichel, still have, you know, Stone, Petrangelo, um, everybody kind of under contract, they're not exactly going to get a lot of cap relief here. But, you know, as you said, they're also the ones that put themselves in the cap bind um, in the first place. uh, By going after uh, Alex Petrangelo, though I think, the way they've finagled that cap situation, I think, actually worked out very well for them. But then they really put themselves up against it by then pursuing Jack Eichel as well and having to make, you know, corresponding moves to fit everyone else in around Jack Eichel. And that's how you kind of get where we're at now with those uh and Patcheretti trades. Um but quick I want to like go through some of the early ones um just because like I said, I do want to point out that they were actually very good at this for a good portion of their history because you know looking at some of the cap clearing moves they made early on like after year two when they lost that obviously controversial game seven to the sharks they ship out eric holla but they get nick wah back that definitely worked out in the yeah. long term uh they got rid of the last three years of colin miller's contracts for two draft picks that helped them get alec martinez and matias yanmark based on how miller did in buffalo and how obviously martinez and yanmark worked out i'd say that's a win yeah uh, Nikita Gusev to New Jersey. That was like shocking at the time that before he even played an NHL game, uh, they got rid of Nikita Gusev, who's like a promising Russian player. Well, he's already back in the KHL because he kind of had enough defensive issues where it didn't work out for him uh, in the NHL. Uh, he played for New Jersey, then he played for Florida. He had a PTO in Toronto and just didn't really stick. So now they have with the draft picks they got for Gusev, uh, defense prospects, Lucas Cormier and Daniil Cheka, who are like probably, you know, Two of their uh, better prospects, and then forward prospect Jakob Demick. So, that you know, trade obviously they haven't got those guys to the NHL yet, but it's certainly trending well. Uh, even Paul Stasny, they only got back a fourth round pick, but they flipped that pick for Brett Howden, who turned into a pretty positive contributor last year. And then they just moved Chandler Stevenson into the top six. And so, net net, I think that worked out, um, especially because even with Nate Schmidt, when they only got a third back, well, they flipped that third to get Evgeny Donoff and then they got Alex Petrangelo in and I did the math Chandler Stevenson and Alex Petrangelo is kind of your de facto number two center number one defenseman um, are cheaper than having Paul Stasny and Nate Schmidt play those same roles for your team and I think the cheaper guys in Stevenson and Petrangelo are better at those roles than Stasny and Schmidt um, so I think it worked out and then Schmidt obviously went on to have not not so good year in vancouver in 2021 got flipped for a third again to winnipeg this past off season we had a pretty good year um but his value certainly has not um gone up so like i said i think ultimately those deals kind of worked out and kind of helped improve the picture of the golden knights roster um in terms of these like kind of early deals because we're going through uh, basically, after year two but before year four, the Petrangelo year in the you know limited uh, divisions, which was the Marc Andre Fleury Vesna year. Uh, do any of these stand out as particularly interesting to you, or any of them that you disagree and would like still maybe take back in hindsight, or um, doesn't you know? Didn't honestly, work out?
0: these ones. No, I, I completely agree with you that these ended up working out for them in the long run. It's the ones after this, which I know we're going to get to here in just a second is where it starts to get bad.
1: Yeah, it starts to get dicey. But yeah, I just wanted to at least point these out because I think even like Goosev, I think was a shock at the time, um, as anything people got, but obviously Schmidt, there was an emotional component yeah. there where, I mean, he still, he was just got huge cheers when I was at Las Vegas ballpark for yeah. Yeah, the Battle for Vegas charity softball game. People love Nate Schmidt as they should. I mean, he's a... You know, it's hilarious. He stepped up to bat for the home run derby and hit a ball with a hockey stick. So that was incredible. Yeah, you gotta love Nate Schmidt. I mean, as hit a hit it
0: right down the third base line too. So
1: as a fellow University of Minnesota uh, alumnus, I am obligated um, to very much enjoy Nate Schmidt. And I do. He's a great dude. He actually got married. I saw this summer. So congrats to um, Schmidt and to his wife. But like I said, I think the trade, even though they were like, "Oh my gosh, you got rid of Nate Schmidt for only a third round pick," um, you know, like. I think it ultimately did work out in favor of the Knights, just because, like I said, they swapped out Stasny and Schmidt essentially for Stevenson and Petrangelo, and yeah. I think ultimately got better and beat Colorado that year, and then had a very very big stumble against Montreal. But roster wise, I think that did push them further and potentially closer. Well, and, to and the, the thing, Stanley the
0: cup. thing, uh, the thing I think people forget about Nate Schmidt was that he did not have a very good playoff that year, and he was kind of one of the...
1: In the bubble year, yeah. The yeah, run I guess you
0: I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I, I don't want to use the word weakness because he was still fairly decent, one of their better defensemen, but he wasn't on the level of where he was, and so you could kind of start to see the decline, which ended up kind of magnifying in Vancouver. So at the end of the day, I understand why they made that move. I understand why people are also angry about it because he's one of the more liked players, not only in the locker room, but outside of the locker room with the fan base. But again, sometimes you got to make moves to get better. And that one has so far looked like it's one that got them a little bit better.
1: Yeah, it, it it's aged well so far and we'll see what happens because there's still a lot of time left on that Petrangelo contract, just like there is quite a bit of time left on that uh, Schmidt deal too. So he still has a chance to potentially have a very good year in Vancouver this up or not Vancouver. He's in Winnipeg now uh, this upcoming year. So we'll see how that nets out. But like I said, trending well. Uh, But then, like I said, we'll get to their more recent history, the kind of flat cap even more impacted history because Stasny and Schmidt were traded kind of in the first year of the flat cap. So I think people were still figuring it out a little bit and weren't quite sure how long it was going to necessarily last. And now we've got a bigger grasp on it. Um, So, yeah, I already touched on this. Marc-Andre Fleury for Basically nothing. No offense to Mikhail Hakkarainen, who was the a player they got back who didn't even join the organization.
0: Golden Knights legend, by the way.
1: Golden Knights legend did not even suit up for the team, but hey, he was part of like potentially the biggest transaction in team history, or It'll at least be the a one trivia that, question one of these days. Absolutely. Oh, that's a great trivia question. I can't wait till yeah, doing hockey trivia in some bar like ten years down the road. Like, who was Mark Andre Fleury traded for? I'm gonna crush that. Uh, but so the, the Knights got no return. And Chicago, I think it's worth pointing out that Chicago basically gave up nothing, got Marc-Andre Fleury, had him as their goalie for the majority of the season. Then Chicago got back a second round pick for Fleury at the deadline. So the asset that Chicago gave up nothing to get, they then traded to get back a second round pick. So it ended up being, you know, basically Chicago bought a second round pick by, you know, having Fleury on their roster for whatever it was, for months. Um, And it actually could have been even worse looking for the Knights. It was a conditional first round pick that the Wild gave up. uh, If basically Marc-Andre Fleury was their starter and the wild made it to the third round of the playoffs, the conference finals, which they would have had to not only beat St. Louis who they lost to in the first round, but then beat Colorado. So it was unlikely, but still Chicago was able to get a conditional first that ended up being a second round pick. Um, so that made the trade, I think look even tougher for the Knights in hindsight, the Chicago actually got something back and got something pretty good back from Mark Andre Fleury. Um, then, you know, as we already talked about, yeah, I've for Shea Weber, so now that Shea Weber contract is on the Knights books for the next four years, which means they're almost certainly operating in long-term injured reserve uh, for the next four years because uh, even if they would want to move it, uh, Shea Weber, I believe his no-move clause is like still active. Even though he is not active as a player, his contract does have a no-move clause. So I think to trade him and to trade his LTIR contract, you technically do need his permission. And if I'm Shea Weber and my contract now resides in a no-tax State. Yeah, why
0: would you want to move that?
1: And I owe nothing to the Golden Knights. Yeah, like Shay Weber, I'm like, love it here. Cool, this is like free extra money for me um, in retirement. So yeah, the Knights are going to be in LTIR for the next probably four years, which limits their financial flexibility. It means they can't accrue cap space before the deadline like they did in year three, which helped them get all the pieces that they got then, which was Alec Martinez, Nick Cousins, Robin Leonard, accruing cap space throughout the year, which is when they kept sending down nick hague nick wa cody glass like every off day and then calling them back up for game days that's why they did that they cannot do that moving forward which hampers their ability to kind of add mid-season for the next four years So that's a tough price to pay that kind of limited flexibility to get off to donov's contract after they gave up a third and nick holden to get to donov a, a summer ago and then yeah we already touched on this too uh patrick Coglin. Uh, get nothing in return after Pacioretty cost the Knights Nick Suzuki, Tomas Tatar, and a second-round pick in 2018, uh, along with his four-year extension, which for the most part has looked very well. I mean, he played very well for the Knights the duration of his tenure here. Um, So obviously tough for the Knights to lose him and his goal-scoring ability and get nothing in return, as well as a useful uh, defenseman in Dylan Coughlin. So yeah, these are... The bad ones, as Kristen Bell would probably say, this is the bad place in terms of the cost-cutting trades that the Knights have now especially had to make in recent years because of the flat salary cap, and we'll see whether more are going to be needed moving forward because, it's we said, the cap's not exactly uh, getting any better here in the near future. Uh, which one of these sticks out to you as, like, the either most harmful, most, you know, regretful, like toughest to handle or to recover from, uh, which of these sticks out in your mind of like, man, they're really going to look back and be like, why did we force ourselves, you know, back ourselves into a corner where we had to do this? Cause we had, as you pointed out earlier, we had no leverage. So we had to take something.
0: I mean, it's pretty easy to say that losing the Vesna trophy winner for absolutely nothing is is a tough one, but I think kind of to go more deep into it a little bit. The get, Acquiring Shea Weber's contract for Evgeny Dodonov when you gave up a lot to get Evgeny that that's going to end up being one of those, I think, that's going to bite him, especially if, I don't know, in a year from now or something like that at a trade deadline when there's a player that they could go get, but they haven't accrued enough cap space during the year because of Shea Weber's contracts. well, then,
1: yeah. That's the easiest way to put it. <laughs> No, I think that's a really good one, a good, interesting thing to point out, especially because I think it would have been potentially even easier to buy into this um, if they had not gotten back Shea Weber's LTIR contract it, make, contract. it makes things more complicated where, you know, you look at the roster now and like the blue line is pretty much set. The goaltending will be set if and when those guys get healthy. The top six forwards, I think, are in a pretty decent spot if you say, like, okay, we'll have Stevenson move up to left wing to fill Pacioretty's spot. So you go Stevenson, Eichel, Stone, and then the Misfits. And then you get to the bottom six, which is not looking as hot, where you're probably going to have to do something like Carrier, Wah, Colasar, which was your fourth line to start last camp. Maybe that's your third line now, and you've got guys like Michael Amadio, Brett Howden, Maybe Jake Lecision on your fourth line. Okay, there's definitely upgrades that you can make there. And it would be great or at least interesting if you're like, all right, well, we're going to start with this lineup. We think that's probably good enough to still probably get us in the playoffs, assuming reasonable health. And at the deadline, hey, we'll have been under the cap this whole time. We'll accrue some space and then we'll go out and we'll get a really good, you know, like third line right wing the kind that like alex tuck was for us maybe not quite like that but you know we'll go out and get a third line kind of secondary scorer guy they were linked to uh ricard raquel who is now at the pittsburgh penguins he was traded at the pittsburgh penguins signed an extension there but theoretically we'll get last year's ricard raquel this deadline and that'll kind of help round us out as a lineup now your path to getting that guy is a lot trickier which i think makes it a lot harder to kind of accept some of these moves where now you're wondering you know not only is the roster i think potentially worse. well i think it's clearly worse than it was to start camp uh last year because yeah. you've lost patch coglin to off um but now you've, you've cut off or at least made it more difficult to see a path to improvement as well throughout the year which i think makes it harder to you know, buy into this team team's going to jump right back into being a clear Stanley Cup contender.
0: Well, and the other thing, too, with losing those guys, just again, kind of talking about some of the cap issues that the team's had. Now you're going to be relying on veterans to move up the lineup that maybe aren't best suited for those roles, or you're going to be relying on prospects to come in and have significant impacts that may not be ready yet. And if you don't, if you don't get that, you're in trouble there's no other there's no other way to look at it if if they don't get career years out of some some of these veterans that they have on the roster and if they play some of their prospects if like let's say Brennan brisson comes in and he's not able to really make a significant impact in the lineup where they need him now now you're look now you're looking at missing the playoffs a second year in a row and yeah. that's not going to go over well
1: no will not no and i think the prospects one's interesting because i'm sure people were um you know intense fans of the golden knights are probably like hey like you're talking about you might need a Ricard Raquel type at the deadline. Well, what if Brendan Brisson can be that? Which there's some logic to it. He and Patchetti actually play the same um, spot on the power play. They're te- you know right half wall kind of guys that obviously Brisson, a lot of his one-timers come from that right circle, which is where Patchetti was situated at the end of the year. He can bounce between circles, but at the end of the year Patchetti was mainly in that uh, right circle role that Brendan Brisson can fill. So there's like logic there, but as you... Point out, I mean, Brandon Brisson's still a really young guy. I mean, it's a lot to ask him to potentially be like a, a significant contributor, not just a contributor we're talking about, you know, like I said, being the, you know, Alex Tuck Ricard Raquel of this team as a rookie coming in as a, like a late first round pick, not necessarily a high first round pick, but a late first round pick. That's, that's a lot. That's a tough ask for a guy. And if he's not, you know, ready for it, it's tough to potentially hinge a good portion of like your season's or at least, ultimate like postseason fate, you know, on that kind of thing. So we'll have to see what ends up happening. Um, this is kind of the Golden Knights bed that they made for themselves in terms of going out and acquiring Petrangelo, Eichel, acquiring Leonard, re signing him long term, all this kind of stuff. I'm wanting to make sure they brought back Riley Smith, Brett Howden, um, and of course, they're going to try to re sign uh, Nick Walk, Nick Hag. Um, because they're trying to do all these different things. There's a cost to that, and that involves moving these guys out, and we'll see whether kind of the net-net um, ultimately you know, has lands them in a better spot this year than they were last year. Um, as I said, going through the kind of the earlier moves, I think for a lot of their history, the net-net has been positive even as far as, like I said, uh, the 2021 season where they uh, shipped out Stasny and Schmidt and potentially did emerge with kind of a better group out of that but we'll see if they were able to pull off similar magic uh this off season which is a lot trickier when you're not necessarily getting much back in return Um, but that's going to do it for this edition of the golden edge podcast Uh, once again it was good to be back but we are taking uh next week off again because it's the slow time of year so there's not quite as much news popping up but for all the news that you do need remember we are presented by the Las Vegas Review Journal. Check out all our written work at reviewjournal.com. We are also presented by Blue Wire. And of course, we are sponsored by Station Casinos, STN Sports. Uh, And of course, if you guys could rate, review, subscribe, whatever you do to podcasts, please do to this one. We would very much appreciate it. Uh, I'm Ben Goetz. That's Matt Atencio. We are the Golden Edge Podcast. Talk to you guys again real soon.